This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we'll start into chapter 9. The chapter opens with a familiar account of Jesus' teaching being interrupted by four men opening a hole in the roof of the house Jesus was in and lowering their crippled friend down to him on ropes. They really knew how to make an entrance, it seems. Well, you might also think this is another illustration of Jesus' power over disease and sickness, and it is. But as we'll learn, this is much more about Jesus' power as God to forgive. And oh, how we need forgiveness. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So church, what we have here is another scene. Remember, Matthew is not concerned with chronology. He gives us different scenes here to fit his purpose. And what he's doing here, the gospel writer substantiates Christ's claim of divinity by pointing out, I want you to see here, four divine prerogatives of the majestic Savior that confirm his divinity, therefore his power to forgive. That's what we're going to talk about today, these four prerogatives. The first one is this. Jesus sees people's faith, verses 1 through 2. Now, this event actually takes place before the Sermon on the Mount. Luke places the right chronology here in chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. But to fit his purpose, Matthew, the tax collector turned disciple, provides the shortest version of this account. And like we've been doing for these past couple of weeks, we're going to look at the other synoptic gospels to fill in the details here. And when we do this, here are some of the details. For example... Jesus was teaching in a house. And I want you to know that the dwellings of this time, the houses had an upper room and a flat roof on top. The upper room was designed for gatherings like that, for social gatherings, and the flat roof for relaxation in the cool breeze. On this particular occasion, this place, the house, became so crowded that not even the first floor could accommodate all the multitudes. Four men, knowing that they couldn't make it to the place where Jesus was, climbed the stairs outside the house carrying their paralytic friend. Mark tells us that, and they removed the tiles from the roof to create an opening wide enough for them to lower their friend to Jesus. That's in Luke 5, verse 19. And what we know here is that their efforts demonstrated not only their compassion for their friend, but also Jesus saw their faith and primarily their faith to bring the man to the only one who could help him. Now, Jesus saw into their hearts, is what Matthew tells us here. And in the process, he identified their desperation. He acknowledged their faith because as the God-man, the majestic Savior possesses the divine attribute of omniscience. 
And uh, the, the lesson we learn here, therefore, is this, friend. Jesus assesses your faith better than you can assess your faith. He knows exactly where you are. He knows the desperation of your heart and the distress and the agony of your heart. And just like he saw the distress of these friends, these five friends, the four friends and the paralytic, he sees your distress and your agony, and he is ready to respond in compassion like he did with that man. Why? Because it is his prerogative to know people's faith. That's the first one. But I want you to know the second prerogative of our majestic Savior here, the divine characteristics of Christ, if we can call it this way. And that's in the second half of verse 2. Jesus not only sees people's faith, he erases people's sin. Now, he addressed the man on the stretcher and assured him forgiveness of sin. Well, why in the world is he doing that? It doesn't seem like that man's primary concern was forgiveness of sin. The guy wanted to walk again. But remember, he sees, Jesus sees people's faith, and his reaction then indicates that the paralytic and his friends were primarily concerned with the consequences of particular sins. And the reason I say this, church, is because there was a common thought in that time, and is also common today, that physical problems are always necessarily a consequence of sin, particular sins. In other words, if you're sick, it's because of some sort of a sin issue in your life. We know, for example, uh, that uh, Job's friends held that view thousands of years before Christ. Let me, let me read you the words of Eliphaz, one of the friends that Job had in Job 4, verse 8. He says this, According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. In other words, he's telling Job, the reason you're experiencing all of this is because you are living in sin. And this is how God responded to Eliphaz in Job 42, verse 7. My wrath is kindled against you. And your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. What a contrast between those friends and the friends of the paralytic man here. Now, the disciples of Christ had a similar view, and it's a wrong view of God-appointed suffering. They, They misinterpreted and they misapplied the sovereignty of God. And as a result, they ask Jesus, for example, in John 9, verses 2 to 3, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Well, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed on him. So church, what we learn here is according to Jesus, people get sick, not necessarily because of ongoing sin. Now, that is the case sometimes, for example, if you live a very promiscuous life and you get some sort of a disease, yes, that is a result of your bad decisions. And obviously, the disease is a consequence of your poor decision-making. But that's not always the case. For example, if you are sick with something, which seems to be the case of this paralytic here, for no apparent reason, otherwise the gospel writers would probably have let us know, but we don't know the reason of his paralysis. It could have been something that he was born with. It could have been an accident. We don't know the reason. So what we do know is that physical maladies are not always necessarily a punishment from God. Jesus took care of the greatest need of that paralytic. His greatest need was not to be able to walk again. His greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. And Jesus took care of that sin. And that man received the best news you could ever hear. He received eternal life at that moment. And at that time, he became a new creation, a brand new member of the kingdom of heaven. He had his sins forgiven. Now, the word that Jesus used to refer to this man as having his sins forgiven, according to Matthew, is the word that means sending away your transgressions forever, which means that God will never bring up again this man's iniquities because he has been saved. He has been forgiven. The Lord discharged him of his guilt and of his shame. And likewise, church, 
Our greatest need is not physical healing. Our greatest need is not to have a job. Your greatest need is not to have money in the bank account. Your greatest need, my friend, is not food even. It's not clothing. But your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. Because in a spiritual sense, if you don't have your sins forgiven, then you will perish eternally, separated forever from your Creator and from your Redeemer. Consider this. God may heal you from your disease today as an answer to prayer, but you will have others because we live in a fallen world. Sin will be a part of our existence until glorification. Until we get to heaven, we will experience disease. We will experience physical problems. So Jesus may heal you of your problem today, but eventually you will have others and eventually you will die. And that's because of sin. Sin entered the world, not because of your particular sin or my particular sin, because we live in a fallen world. Now, here's something else Scripture teaches us here that we need to understand. Jesus is the only one who can cancel spiritual debts, and that's very important for us to understand. What that means, church, is you can never balance the scales. That's a common misunderstanding of salvation. People still think that you can balance the scales, meaning you can do enough good works to sort of cancel your bad deeds. You can never do that. You need a Savior to forgive you of your sins. Otherwise, there is no way to make it to the kingdom of heaven. The reason for that, church, is according to Scripture, you and I owe an unpayable debt to our Creator. And Christ wrote off that bill when He died on a cross on your behalf and on my behalf when He said, It is finished. And for that reason, my friend, you and I can have our sins forgiven. And you can have your sins forgiven today, erased forever on the merit of Christ, not on the merit of what you can do. Jesus not only sees people's faith, he erases people's sins. He doesn't just shove them to the side here. He erases them because he paid for them on the cross. So the two prerogatives of our majestic Savior here so far that Matthew wants us to see very clearly are Jesus sees people's faith, verses 1 through 2. He erases people's sins, verse 2, second half of that verse. And thirdly, I want you to know that Jesus knows people's thoughts. That's another prerogative of our majestic Savior. He knows people's thoughts. Verses 3 through 5. Now, when we look at the account from Luke of this event here, he points out that Pharisees and teachers of the law were present in the house. Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus' claim of divinity shocked them so much that they started to murmur amongst themselves and made accusations amongst themselves here. And according to Mark, they verified correctly That only God can forgive sins. See, they made a correct observation that forgiveness of sins is a prerogative of God alone. That's in Mark 2, verse 7. But Matthew wants us to know that without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus knows people's thoughts before they can even formulate them in their heads. And that's the same for you and for me, my friend. Jesus knows what you're thinking before you're able to put the words together, before you can construct your thought, before you even articulate them. Jesus knows what you're thinking. And that's another demonstration of divinity here that Matthew wants us to know, that Jesus Christ is divine, not only because he sees people's faith, not only because he erases people's sins, but because he can see what's in your heart. He can read your mind. And let me give you a visual representation of that. Another one here, but that's from a different portion of Scripture here. Revelation 1, verses 12 through 14. John, the revelator, is having a vision of the glorified and resurrected Christ. And he illustrates that in the vision that he had very clearly. He says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. See, same title. A son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
And the point here is very clear that nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of Jesus Christ because he is omniscient as the God-man, as the majestic Savior. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his control. Nothing escapes what he sees. And because he knows all of these things, in that house in Capernaum, he identifies the evil in the heart of his opponents. Did you catch that? He said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He knew that. It's not that he heard the comments. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He didn't have to hear the comments. And he addressed that. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And he asked them the two rhetorical questions here, or that one double rhetorical question, and gave them an opportunity to repent. That's the purpose of that rhetorical question, is to give them an opportunity to repent. And he is about to once again demonstrate his divine credentials, his divine prerogatives. But before we even get into that, I need to point out a serious warning here from the text that I want you to see. Now, listen very carefully here. When someone rejects Christ, he or she is not choosing another religion or one religion over another. He or she is not choosing neutrality even. According to verse 4, Jesus considers rejection of him evil. You see? And why is that, church? Not because Jesus needs followers. He doesn't. The Bible says that he is God from eternity past. He existed from eternity past. So he doesn't need people to enhance his divinity. No, he has been God from eternity past and he doesn't need followers. But he identifies the evil in these guys' heart because rejecting Christ is evil. Let's put things in perspective here. Imagine being brought to trial in which the judge erases your death sentence. He, He dismisses your death sentence and tears off your criminal record. Not only that, he orders the bailiff to remove your handcuffs and the judge personally goes and opens the door of the courtroom and says, you are free to go. I paid your debt. I suffered your punishment. Now, let me ask you this, church. Would anybody in their right mind say, well, this judge doesn't know what he's talking about. Would anybody think that? Yet, church, many people reject Christ. And that's exactly what people do when they say, no, I'll pass on your Jesus, that when they decline the divine prerogatives of Jesus Christ. Oh, they'll take Jesus Christ as a good teacher. They'll take Christ as, as, as the genie in a lamp who's ready to grant them three wishes. They don't mind that. But when it comes to forgiveness of sins, they'll say, no, I'd rather work to erase my records. And that is impossible. It's an unpayable debt. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We can never accomplish that. We need Christ to come and declare to us, your sins are forgiven. And the only way that he can do that is when we respond to him in faith. Why would people reject such kindness? It's beyond me. And yet people do it all the time. We have no greater joy here at Grace Baptist Church than to tell people, about the kindness of God who paid for the penalties of their sin and is ready to forgive them. Now, let's look at verse 5 again. How would you answer that question? When Jesus says, which one is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Think about that for a moment. How would you answer that? Remember, this is a rhetorical question. Anyone can say these two statements. Anyone can say that they're able to do that. In fact, there were many false messiahs before Jesus Christ who made similar statements. There have been many false messiahs after Christ who still make those false statements. Only one person can truly forgive sins and prove his claim with a visual demonstration. And that's the point that Matthew wants us to see. Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive sins, and he proves it with a visual demonstration. No trick, no gimmicks, but a real miracle. Which leads me to the fourth divine prerogative here and last one in our outline. Jesus sees people's faith, according to verses 1 and 2. 
He erases people's sins according to verse 2, second half of that verse. He knows people's thoughts according to verses 3 through 5. And finally, Jesus changes people's lives. He changes people's lives according to verses 6 through 8. What we see here when he told this paralytic to get up and walk is that his works back up his words. He is proving to be God. He is not just claiming to be God. He is demonstrating that he is God. He's demonstrating that he has the power to forgive sin. He says that this is his purpose. My purpose is to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says it very clearly here. Now, in that house in Capernaum, without waiting for the response from his critics, he does that. And he says, I am the Messiah. That's why he says, the Son of Man. He uses that expression again. The Son of Man, not only, it's not just an identification with humanity, it's the messianic title. Jesus is saying, I am the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. And I am telling you, I have the power to forgive sins. And let me demonstrate that to you. Now, why in the world is he saying that he has authority on earth to forgive sins? Did you ever wonder that when you're reading this or studying this? Why is he saying that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? Well, the answer to that is in Matthew 28, verse 18. The passage we know as the Great Commission, when Jesus Christ says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissions the disciples to say, You make disciples of every nation. The reason for that is because he will rule for a thousand years on earth. After his return here and before the current heavens and earth pass away. By the way, the current heavens and earth will pass away. Jesus says that in Matthew 24, verse 35. He will establish a new heaven and a new earth. That's in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1. So Jesus then not only proves his divinity here, he proves that he can change people's lives, not only the life of that paralytic, but everyone who was watching. He finally takes care of the secondary need of that man. After he's resurrected the spirit of that guy, he healed the body of the man. And as a result, he changed his life forever. Well, the guy walked from that place. He came through the roof and he walked through the door. Can you imagine that? Can you, can you imagine being in that house and watching that? These guys removed the tile of the roof to bring the paralytic, the guy who couldn't even bring himself to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ not only forgives his sin, makes him born again. And oh, by the way, you're going to walk again too. As a demonstration of kingdom realities. We need to understand that. That's the purpose of that miracle. is to demonstrate to everybody that subjects of the kingdom of heaven will one day have perfect health. But not now. Between now and then, we still have to deal with diseases and physical problems and physical maladies. But the gospel writers immortalized the story of this man here as a testimony for generations to come. Now, that man died eventually. His body became frail again and eventually he died. But again, Jesus is given a preview of kingdom realities, my friends. So if you struggle now with physical problems, if you struggle with any, any mechanical problems, walking or, or, or whatever the case is, let that be a great encouragement to you and a hope to you that one day you will have a glorified body. No more physical problems because you are a subject of the kingdom of heaven. Because you have been born again, because you had your sins forgiven, you will have perfect health one day. You will live forever in a body that is not subject to the effects of sin, of the Adamic nature, the nature of Adam. And that is only because you've had your sins forgiven by God, the Son of Man, 
the one who is God and man at the same time. 100% God, 100% man. Not 50-50, not a demigod, not a hybrid. 100% God, 100% man. We see that very clearly here. Jesus Christ, flesh and bone in that house, demonstrating his divine prerogatives, his divine attributes. Now, something else I want you to know. Matthew is not giving us a pattern. Okay, is that clear, church? This is not a prescriptive text. It's a descriptive text. It's telling us what happened. It's not telling us what should happen all the time. And the reason we know that is by logic alone. He demonstrates what took place. Jesus is not obligated to heal people today. Let's get that out of the way. Okay, Jesus is not mandated to heal anybody today. He does it only because of His grace. In fact, He decides in most cases to not heal people. So my friend, if you're complaining that God hasn't healed you, just enjoy the fact that God is holding you by His grace, by His sustaining grace. And try to see the goodness of God in your difficulty. Try to see the goodness of God because you are in the presence of the one who forgives sins. The one who one day will cause you to walk in a glorified body. And one day we will enjoy fully the benefits of that. Between now and then, however, we still battle with physical maladies. We still battle with diseases. See, we have been justified when we came to Jesus Christ in faith, which means he declared us to be righteous in his sight. Now we are being sanctified, which means he is transforming us in accordance to his will, in accordance to his plans, so that we can be more like him. And one day we will be glorified which means that we will have a resurrected body, a body that is not subject to physical problems. But between now and then, we should not expect perfect health. Now, we do everything to have good health. We should do everything to have good health. You should change your eating habits, of course. Last week, I told you eating animals is good. Maybe you should eat some vegetables from time to time, too. They're good, too. They taste good. Just season them well, and you'll be all right. You can change your lifestyle. You can take medication. You obey the the orders from the doctors. We pray for healing. But if God has a different plan for your life and for my life, we rejoice. We submit to his perfect plan for our lives in case he decides to withhold physical restoration for our lives. Now, rebirth is humanity's greater need than walking again, than being restored physically. You need a spiritual resurrection more than a physical restoration and that's the point that Matthew wants us to see so what we learn then from this instead of being bitter because our physical handicaps and limitations here's the biblical perspective and that's from Paul 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 he says this we do not lose heart by the way I love when Bible verses start like this we do not lose heart We have no reason to be depressed. We have no reason to be sad. We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You see, we don't lose heart because, yes, we know that the carcass, the outside is decaying. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because we're being sanctified. The Bible says in Philippians, Paul says that God began a good work in you, my friend, and he will finish it until the day of Christ. That is good. That is reason for us to celebrate. We don't lose heart even though we may get sick here in this life. Matthew then confirms to us that the crowds glorified God. Look at that in verse 8 again. The crowds glorified God. So not only did that paralytic get changed, his life was transformed, God transformed his life, but the people who was watching this had their lives transformed. And I pray that your life will be transformed today as well as you look at this story. Now, it doesn't seem like many of the scribes and Pharisees acknowledge Christ. 
after this. And the reason I say this is because at the end of the chapter, many of them were attributing Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan. That's in Matthew 9, verse 32. But these are the four divine prerogatives of the majestic Savior that we see in the current text here presented in this scene. So what do we do with them? Let's personalize them. How about that? Let's personalize the divine prerogatives of Jesus Christ, our majestic Savior. Um, How do they apply to you? Jesus sees your faith. He knows where you are. He knows that you need to mature in your faith. That's the same thing he did to Peter. He said, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail because he is the one who intercedes for us. Jesus erases your sins. Now, it doesn't matter what you have done in the past. If you have come to Jesus Christ and if you receive the forgiveness of sins, your sins are separated from you as far as east is from the west, according to what the Bible says. Now, you may still have to pay some consequences here on this earth if it's involving crimes or whatever the case is. But as far as the divine jurisdiction, your sins will never be brought up again to you because Jesus took care of them on the cross. Thirdly, Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows exactly what you're thinking now. Even before you're able to formulate or articulate your thoughts, Jesus knows what you're thinking. He sees what's going on in your heart. And finally, He changes your life. And I pray that your life will be transformed today as well as you look at this story. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.